This time the children's church are dismissed. If they want to go to children's church, they are welcome to do so. Have you noticed how the, the extra feature, these, these new screens, which we're thankful to have, have two very special features. The first one is when you're not paying as close attention as you should, they turn off and back on. Okay. And the second one is they're adjustable. I don't know. Is it hard to see if you're clear in the back? Because we can make it bigger. The way we do that is you just move forward. <laughs> Boy, but aren't they nice? So bright compared to what we had, and you can actually see things on them. We will be watching Penguins hockey here this afternoon at 1230. No, we won't. No, we won't. No. Yeah. By the way, they're playing the Flyers. I'm just mentioning that to you there, Mr. Williams, just in case. Uh, I didn't know if you knew that. Okay. All right. Hey, um, I'd like to ask you if you would open your Bibles to John chapter 12, and there is, as usual, a Bible app event for this, so you can follow along on your smartphone if you have the Bible app, and you know how to do that. You click the menu, you click events, and it should come up that there's an event nearby you here. Okay, John chapter 12, if you want to do it the old-fashioned way, okay? That's a good way to do it. So there is this thing that happens between people. It especially happens between couples. It happens in marriage a lot. A guy says to his wife, or to his girl, he says something he feels like is real straightforward. I'm empty. And she begins to think, and she goes into that mode. Do you know the mode, guys? She goes into that mode where she's like, what does he mean? He's empty. And so she gets on the internet, she Googles, my husband feels empty, what should I do? And she spends some time there looking that up. And then she, she texts her girlfriend and she says, hey, Willis says that he feels empty. What, what am I supposed to do about that? How, what do you think he's dealing with? And finally, she calls her mother and says, look, um, Willis says he's, th- does dad ever tell you he's empty? What does that mean when he says he's empty? And in the end, she discovers that really it's just a matter of coffee, that he's out of coffee. And that's what the emptiness is. It's nothing as serious as she thought. And that kind of thing happens quite frequently in relationships, that we kind of take things and overcomplicate them And in overcomplicating them, we kind of miss the message. We kind of miss the whole thing. And we even do this, I would say, we do this with God. We take a biblical doctrine and we put it under a microscope and we examine it and we dissect it and we make conclusions about it to the place where we we miss the beautiful, simplistic point that God wants us to get. And so it is with the concept of God's sovereignty and Jesus' kingly sovereignty. We kind of miss the point that God has in mind for us. You know that today is Palm Sunday. It's the Sunday before Good Friday. On Sunday, Jesus rode down the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley into Jerusalem on a donkey. He was welcomed as a king. By Thursday night, he's having Passover with his disciples, and he's uh, instituting the Lord's Supper. And then on Friday, uh, that night he's arrested. Friday morning, he's crucified. He dies, and he's buried. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the third day, he is, he's alive. He rises, he raises rather from the dead. And uh, that beautiful story as he's coming down off of the Mount of Olives as a king is a story that demonstrates that he's always in control, that he is sovereign, that whatever he does, he does with his might and with his glory. I want to read to you that story. I'm going to read it from the Gospel of John today. We're going to begin in chapter 12, verse 12. We're just going to read uh, maybe seven verses or eight verses here, and then I want to speak to you about them. John 12, 12. The next day, a great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. 
They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, the disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now I want to just look at a couple verses in there and kind of emphasize them to you. Look at verse 13 and see what it says. It says, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. That's what you would do If Caesar were riding into town, if Herod were coming into town and you liked him, you would have taken palm branches to greet this king who was coming in. They shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the last sentence in verse 13, do you see what it says? Blessed is the king of Israel. And then two verses later in verse 15, you see it says, don't be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Who's coming? The king is coming. When we say king, what exactly do we mean? What does... What does the Bible mean when it recognizes Jesus as a king? And that might seem like a silly question to ask, but honestly, you and I, in today's world, we're not that familiar with kings. I mean, there's, I guess there's royalty in England, right? And is one of them getting married? I could not care less, right? That's just thank God for the internet where you can just skip those things and say to Google, don't put those on my feed, because that's so irrelevant to me. Even, though, even that royal family isn't a king and a queen per se. They are figureheads. And they don't have the power that a monarchy once had. In fact, I did a little Googling myself this week, and I I discerned that there's probably only half a dozen major countries that have kings. Morocco has a king. Saudi Arabia has a king. Jordan has a king. But I'm guessing you can't name those kings. Maybe one of them. But you can't name more than one. That is my guess. We don't understand kingship because we live in a world where there are are not the kind of kings that you would think of in ancient times. You know that there are two kinds of kings, though. You don't have to understand kingship to know that, first of all, there's the king whose rule only benefits him, and he doesn't care about other people. Nero would be such a king as that. There are all kinds of stories told about how atrocious the reign of Nero was. In fact, it is conjectured that Nero himself, he cared so little for those whom he reigned upon or ruled ruled over as the emperor of Rome, that he himself was responsible for fire that got into the city of Rome. Not sure what burned, it was mostly marble, but it was a problem. Nero himself also, it is said, that he would take people, namely Christians, but he took others as well. He would coat them with tar, hang them on poles, and catch them afire to light his gardens in the evening. He was the kind of king who didn't care about the people he ruled. His rule only benefited himself. But there's another kind of king. And that kind of king is a kind of king whose rule benefits his people. Jesus talks about that kind of rulers when he speaks of the kingdom in general. He makes a special point of letting his followers know he expects them, if they're going to be leaders in the kingdom, to behave in the way that he behaves, a way that as king, he serves the people that he rules. It says in Matthew chapter 20, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. 
And then Jesus, who calls himself the Son of Man, says these words. He says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so you see Jesus, as he speaks of what kind of king he is, he says, I'm not the kind of king that Nero was. I am a king whose reign benefits the people I serve. A king, by definition, is someone who is sovereign. And by sovereignty, I mean he possesses supreme and complete power. Jesus possesses supreme and complete power. Rulers of nation in our day, they don't have that, right? Putin might have that. It kind of seems like he does in Russia. But our president, no matter who he is, does not have supreme power. He is amenable to the other branches of government. He's even amenable to those who voted for him or didn't vote for him. Likewise, in countries like the UK and England and even in China and even in Japan, those rulers are not kings in a sense that they do not get to say how things should be. They don't have that kind of power that they make the calls. But a king, the kind of king that the Bible talks about, the kind of king that Jesus is, is the kind of king that gets to make all the calls. The kind of king that anything that occurs happens only if he permits it or orders it. His sovereignty is over all, all that he rules. Jesus' sovereignty is a unique kind of sovereignty as well. And that means he's sovereignty in every area. You think for a minute about the sovereignty that a human king might have. He can establish a lot of things. He can amass an army. That's ruling over people and being sovereign over people. He can make some laws. That's ruling over people, being sovereign over people. He can levy a tax. That's ruling over people and being sovereign over people. A human king, however, cannot be sovereign over nature. For example, he can't control the weather. He's not in control of that. He can't raise the dead. He doesn't have that kind of sovereignty. He can't make a sick person whole. That is not inside of a human king's ability. But Jesus, on the other hand, he is sovereign in every area. And so Jesus, as a king, in Matthew 8, you hear people who are amazed and they ask, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the seas obey him. Why? Because he's a sovereign king over nature. That's a different kind of sovereignty that Jesus has. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is coming upon his funeral and there's a, a woman there and she's grieving over the loss of her, of her son. And, she, and, and Jesus interrupts the funeral service. And he goes up and he touches the funeral buyer they're carrying him on. And everyone stands still like, what is this rabbi doing? And he says, young man, I say to you, get up. And the scripture says, the dead man sat up and Jesus gave him back to his mother. That's a different kind of sovereignty than a human king has. In John 5, 8, Jesus says to someone who's not walking, he's paralyzed, he says, pick up your mat and walk. That's a different kind of sovereignty than Prince Charles has or Prince Harry or whatever the rest of their names are have. You understand? Jesus' sovereignty is an amazing kind of sovereignty. His kingliness is phenomenal. And here's what I want you to hear. I believe that awareness of Jesus' sovereignty is meant to be a blessing to us. It's actually something that we're supposed to celebrate. And I say that because of verses like the one in Psalm 135 that's on the screen. The psalmist says, the Lord does whatever he pleases, whatever pleases him, in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and in all their depths. You have to understand that the man who wrote that wasn't complaining. He wasn't whining like, ah, the Lord does whatever he wants to. He's such a selfish God. He's not doing that at all. 
He's actually writing a hymn of praise. That's what this psalm is. It's something that he's thankful for. It's the lyrics to a song where he says, I am so glad that the Lord does whatever pleases him. I am so thankful that heavens, earth, seas, and all the depths, he is sovereign in all of those things. It is a blessing to me. It's a blessing to us that Jesus is a sovereign king. But here's what's crazy. Often our response to an awareness of his sovereignty robs us of the blessing of his sovereignty. In fact, some people kind of spoil the blessing of God's sovereignty. For example, some people resent sovereignty irrationally. They demand that they be sovereign, not that God be sovereign. You think to yourself, I don't think anybody would do that. I can't imagine someone saying, I don't want God to be sovereign, I want to be sovereign. We do it all the time. Whenever God says to you, this is what I want you to do, and you're like, oh, I really don't want to do that, God. I can't believe you're asking me that. Or when God says to you, you need to stop doing that. That's not good for you. It doesn't honor me. It's not good for others. You need to stop. We're saying, I don't want to stop, but I really like doing it. Whenever we respond that way to God, we are actually resenting his right to rule in our life. We are rebelling against his sovereignty. We are showing that we have this idea that my life is my own. And that's one of the lies that even seasoned Christians believe. The scripture clearly says that you are not your own. It says that you are bought with a price. And still, there are times when most people wish they were sovereign, that they were calling the shots instead of God. And we spoil the blessing of God's sovereignty. Here's another way we spoil that blessing. Some represent sovereignty inaccurately, as though Jesus strong arms his way. Do you understand the kind of thing I'm talking about? Every freshman in a Bible college and every newbie in a theological seminary gets into some kind of an argument, usually in a dorm room, but sometimes in a classroom, over the sovereignty of God. And they say, you know what? If God is sovereign, then you didn't have any choice as to whether you were going to get saved. He elected you to salvation. He chose you. He made you get saved. You had no free will. And then there's a person on the other side who says, well, no, but that, does, that makes me into a robot. What is that? And you see it all the time in those freshman Bible and theology colleges and even newbies at seminaries, and some people never grow out of it, you know? I have a good friend who's a pastor, and he objects to the image of Jesus where Jesus is knocking at the door. He objects to it for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons he doesn't like it is because he says, Jesus doesn't knock at the door to your heart. He can kick that door down. He's sovereign, Right? You know, and that's how, kind of how he, he responds to that. He's sovereign. He can kick the door down if he wants to. Really, he can, but does he? You know, when Luke is talking about Palm Sunday and he's talking about Jesus coming into Jerusalem, Luke says as he approached Jerusalem, Jesus paused for a moment. And in Luke 9.41, he says, Jesus wept over the city. Why is he weeping? Because the Son of God was in their, in their midst. The Messiah was there. And they did not choose to love him. And he knew they would choose to crucify him. And his heart went out to him. He said, if you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The people had a choice to love freely or to close their eyes to that chance. It was their choice. You see, Jesus doesn't strong arm people. He doesn't have to. He wins hearts with his love. And we spoil the blessing of appreciating God's sovereignty by representing it as something that is not. Here's a third way that we spoil God's sovereignty. Some people reject it intensely because they have allowed themselves to become bitter with things that have happened in their life. And they say, if God is sovereign, he 
could have stopped that. If he's in control, he could have kept my grandma alive. If he's in control, that never would have happened to me. If God is sovereign, if he's the king, then I wouldn't have this sickness. If God is sovereign, then why did that person leave me? And so they have this sort of intense rejection that their blood pressure kind of goes up when they think about the sovereignty of God. And in so doing, they spoil the blessing of Jesus' sovereignty for their very own selves. I want to reveal to you the blessing of Jesus' sovereignty so that you can look at it. And when you hear that Jesus is sovereign, you can say, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail King Jesus. And what I want to do is help you to see the sovereignty of Jesus the way God wants you to see it. If we could see Jesus' kingship the way God wants us to see it, it would be a blessing to us. It would be a blessing to us because he is a benevolent king. That word benevolent means that he is a king who loves the people he cares for. Remember Nero? (laughs) He was a king that didn't love the people he cared for. He was a king that used and abused the people he cared for. Jesus is benevolent. Now, we don't often use that word benevolent, right? I mean, when was the last time you said, I think I'm going to engage in a moment of benevolence? It's not something we use in our English language frequently. But what it means when someone says that was a benevolent thing to do, we mean it was a charitable thing to do. Or we mean it was a very kind thing to do. Or we mean it was a very loving thing to do. Or a merciful, a gracious thing to do. It was so benevolent of you to do that. Jesus is a benevolent king. And you see that over and over again as scripture speaks about him. For example, in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 9, it says, when Jesus saw the crowds... He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Here's what you need to get. Here's what you need to understand. Jesus looked at these people who the Pharisees, the religious leadership, held in bondage. The Pharisees had rules that were so strict, no one could live up to them. And then when you didn't live up to them, the Pharisees placed this burden of shame on your back and and of inability and, and of guilt on your back and said, yeah, You're worthless. You're nothing. You can never be loved by God like you should be loved by God. When Jesus saw people who were put down that way and beaten that way, almost spiritual abuse is what is happening there. The scripture says he has compassion on them because they're harassed. That's a benevolent kind of king. Another time, Jesus is in a boat and he's coming to the shore on the Sea of Galilee and he sees this large crowd of people gathering there because they've heard what a good teacher he is. They've heard how he can heal the sick and they bring all the sick people to him and he heals, it says, and he healed their sick. Why? To prove that he was the Messiah? Mm, maybe. More likely? Well, here's the exact wording in Matthew fourteen fourteen, because he had compassion on them. He's a benevolent Messiah. He's a benevolent king. When he fed the 4,000, it's fascinating to me what he says. Matthew 15, he calls his disciples to him and he says, I have compassion on these people for they've already been with me for three days and have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry or they may collapse along the way. I got to tell you, I'd probably be thinking if these guys didn't bring the food to eat, there's 4,000, it's not my job to feed them, right? What are you doing out here without food, dummy, after three days? You couldn't tell you were out of food? What are you doing? Do you think you're going to be at sheets? There's no sheets here. You're going to starve to death. That's because I'm not a benevolent king. But Jesus has compassion, and he does a miracle that feeds them. Here's what to get. 
Here's what to take away from that. Whatever you're going through in your life, hear this, whatever you're going through in your life, the sovereignty of the king is on your side and the sovereign king is on your side and he will behave toward you with a benevolent heart. That's the beauty of the sovereignty of God. But there's even more than that. Jesus' sovereignty is a blessing because he's a powerful king. Not every king is powerful, you understand. Some kings thought they were powerful and they are kings no more, right? They were overthrown, right? But Jesus is the powerful king. Last year, I shared this story with you. I'm going to share it with you again because it really shows how we as a society don't get the importance of the sovereign power of God. Several decades ago, there was a rabbi in New York City named Harold Kushner. He was a good author, and he wrote a book, and the name of his book was When Bad Things Happen to Good People. That's the kind of book I could read, right? When bad things happen to good people. Wow, Jewish rabbi, New York City, knows what he's doing. I'm going to read this book. This is going to be helpful to me. Listen to what Philip Yancey, a Christian author, observes about Kushner. I'm going to read Yancey's words. After watching his son die of the disease progeria, Kushner concluded that, quote, even God had a hard time keeping the chaos in check. And that, quote, God is a God of justice, not of power. According to Rabbi Kushner, God is as frustrated, even outraged by the unfairness on this planet as anyone else, but he lacks the power to change it. And millions of readers found comfort in Kushner's portrayal of God, who seemed compassionate, albeit weak. Now, there's a a gentleman whose name is, I'm probably not saying it right, Eli Wiesel. He was a Jewish man who was in a concentration camp. He read Kushner's book about how, well, God would like to fix everything. He'd like to be sovereign, but he can't because he's too wimpy. And Wiesel wrote, If that's who God is, why doesn't he resign and let someone more competent take his place? Yeah, right? But God doesn't have to resign. He doesn't have to resign because he has the power. He is sovereign. He has the ability to accomplish accomplish whatever he desires to accomplish. The scripture is full of verses that say that. One of them comes from Amos chapter four, where it says of God, he who forms the mountains, who creates the wind, who reveals his thought to mankind, who turns dawn to darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord Almighty is his name. He has the power. When Jesus shows you that he is king, he is saying nothing can stop me. And so listen to this. Here's the take home from the second point. Hear it. There is nothing you are facing that is too big for God. Nothing you're facing is too big for Jesus. Your relationship with your spouse? Well, if he were married to her, he'd know. (laughs) He can fix that. Your financial struggle? He can help you to be disciplined and provide for you all at the same time because he has the power to do that. Your struggle with addiction, he has the power to break those chains. The difficulty that you're having with your schoolwork, the problems you're having with with people at work, whatever they are, your sovereign king, Jesus, has the power to deal with that. That's the beauty of the sovereignty of Jesus. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. 
Jesus' sovereignty is a blessing because he is the wise king. Every one of us makes mistakes, right? I've made mistakes concerning finances. I made mistakes concerning relationships. I've made mistakes concerning everything. I've made mistakes that have been life-altering. Have you? Oh, man, if only. If only, if only, if only. Jesus has never made a mistake. He wasn't hanging on the cross saying, where did I go wrong? He was hanging on a cross saying, today you will be with me in paradise. And he can do that because it was his intent to do that. He never makes any mistakes because he's wise. And here's part of the beauty of this only wise God, as the book of Romans calls him. He's willing to share that. The book of James, in the very first chapter, just five verses in, says, if any of you lack wisdom, you should ask of God. And then it says, he generously gives to all without finding fault. And it'll be given to you. Hear what that's saying. Here's what that's saying. If you need wisdom about a relationship, about your finances, about your habits, about your, about your life, you can go to Jesus and say, would you please give me wisdom here? And it says he gives without finding fault. So Jesus doesn't look at you and say, well, you are such a screw up, man. There is no way. Do you know what you did the last time I gave you wisdom? It's not happening, baby. He doesn't do that. He gives wisdom without finding fault. And he provides it for you. It's part of his sovereignty that enables him to do that. It's part of his kingliness that enables him to do that. And you can trust him as your sovereign God. And Jesus' sovereignty is a blessing because he is a gracious king. A gracious king. That means he is ready to forgive whenever you mess up. You know, there's a passage of scripture, probably the most popular Bible verse in the world. It's John 3.16. I would guess if I were to ask, there'd be dozens of you could recite that verse. I won't. But it says this. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever trusts in him, believes in him, need not perish, but would have eternal life. Love that verse. Anybody know the very next verse? I almost like it better. Some of you are mouthing it because you know it. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. How gracious he is. How kind he is. How, how merciful he is. Some people would want to give you the impression that God is out to put you down. I was just speaking to one of you out in the lobby during the Sunday school hour for a couple minutes, and, the, and this, this gentleman I was speaking to said, you know, church I went to growing up, it was all about guilt. It was all about judgment. It was all about putting you down. It was all about you're not doing it right, and you better get it right, because if you don't get it right, there's going to be hell to pay. You understand? And, 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 and he said, I, I came to realize that different churches say different things. <laughs> and, they, and they really do. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus said, I have not come to condemn you or to condemn the world. Your phone can go off in the middle of a service and I don't care, right? She uh, has a job that she's on call. That's why she did that. But even if it wasn't, even if that's her mom calling her to ask her what's for lunch, that's okay because we're not here to condemn and neither is Jesus, right? I haven't come to condemn you. He's, He's a gracious, merciful kind of a king. And whatever you're going through, No matter how many times you've messed up, he's there for you. And you can think to yourself, 
How in the world could you ever take me back after I did this for the umpteenth time, God? And he says, I'll take you back because I am your sovereign, gracious king. I will help you. I will help you. That's the kind of sovereign he is. (laughs) You can trust your gracious king. His sovereignty is a blessing because he's sympathetic. And that's one of the reasons he's gracious. God is sympathetic toward us because first, it's in his nature to be sympathetic. And second, because we don't have a high priest, the Bible says. We don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with us in our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. You know that my daughter is in a Muslim country, and you know she has a little boy. I don't know if I told you I'm a grandpa. Yeah, you told me, Pastor. And uh, the call to prayer happens five times a day there. Some guy's doing that five times a day, and I've told you this before. Whenever it happens, my daughter looks at her little boy and says, that's not for us, Saki. Our God came to be with us. He can sympathize because he became one of us. He took on human form, and he felt what it was to be hungry. He felt what it was to be betrayed. He felt what it was to be tempted. He felt what it was to, to, to see someone die that you desperately love, to, to have needs that, that, humanly speaking, would not be met, to have someone betray you with a kiss. He felt all of that. You have a sovereign king who gets you. You hear young couples, you know. So why do you like Willis, Wilma? He gets me. (laughs) Give him 10 years, he'll get to her, right? He really gets to me. (laughs) Oh, wow, that was cynical, wasn't it? We all want someone who gets us, right? Jesus gets you. He's sympathetic. He understands you. And you can trust your sympathetic king. You know that freshman Bible college argument, that first-year newbie seminary debate concerning God's sovereignty? It really makes me sad. It even makes me a little mad for a couple reasons. One reason is because it just causes a lot of unnecessary confusion. Confusion specifically regarding my responsibility. Let that go. Put that question of God's sovereignty and your free will into the same box that you put the idea that he's fully God and fully man. I don't understand that. I'll take it as a mystery. What's next, you know? Same place the Trinity goes. How can three be one and one be three? I don't understand that. How can God be sovereign and I have free will? I don't understand that. Leave that alone because that confusion is something that will even cause division. Division regarding something we probably can't understand anyway and probably aren't meant to understand. But worst of all, it causes distraction. It causes distraction from all of this that he's a benevolent king, that he is a powerful king, that he's a wise king, that he's a gracious king, he's a sympathetic king, and he's a king that can care for you as you look to him and worship him.